day to day, hour to hour, <laughs> to be literally restored. And the second is this by an American lady written in the 19th century and in 19th century language. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding, finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Thou hast bid me gaze upon thee, and thy beauty fills my soul. For by thy transforming power, thou hast made me whole. We talk easily, don't we, about knowing the Lord. Glibly. How well do we really know him? Come with me to a well in Samaria. I uh, don't think this is working now. Ah, here we are. Jesus said in John 4, when he was talking alone to a woman at the well, if you only knew the gift of God, what God has for you and who I am, you would ask me, and I would give you the gift of living water. And John Piper says there is a direct correlation between not knowing Jesus well and not asking much from him. A failure in our prayer life is generally a failure to ask God because we don't know Jesus well enough. If you knew who was talking to you, you would ask me. And the implication is that those who do ask do so because they know that God is a great giver and that Christ is a wise and merciful and powerful beyond measure. A great attraction. And second, a new perspective. Dan spoke about this last Sunday. When we seek God, he gives us his perspective on things. We begin to see him as he truly is. We begin to see people as he really sees them and situations as he views them. Occasionally in my life, I've known God at work powerfully. I hesitated to say this, but I think I will. One of those occasions was way back before many of us were born. It was when I was at London Bible College in the early 1960s. A bunch of us used to go to Church Street Market between Marlborough Station and uh, Baker Street. We used to stand on a little wooden soapbox. We used to have a loud hailer at which we sh through which we used to shout at people. <laughs> we had the occasional rotten tomato chucked in our direction, and we used to share our testimony with passers-by. But to be honest, we felt pretty ineffective, useless. And it was a sense of desperation, really, that caused the lads in our room in college, we called it the barrack room because there were six of us, 
to meet together on a Friday night and to kneel around my bed to pray. We were driven by desperation, basically, for more of the Lord and to see him at work in our lives and in the lives of others. It was a struggle at first. I can remember this as clearly as if it were yesterday. And then the Lord broke through. <laughs> he began to show us something of his, himself, his glory, his greatness, his purity, his holiness. And before much more time had passed, we found ourselves weeping. The Lord showed us something of who he is and then something of our own hearts. And we found ourselves confessing our sin and our need as he shone his spotlight into the dark areas, the hidden areas of our lives. And then he showed us Jesus. <laughs> and he showed us our Savior dying for us on the cross and promising us forgiveness and healing and wholeness. And we wept again with joy. <laughs> Talk about leaping and dancing and praising the God. It was all there. I think that was the first ever conscious experience I had of being filled with the Holy Spirit. We were walking on air for weeks, and later that summer, I led a trek team in Hertfordshire. We took this old cart with us, putting it behind us, filled with all our stuff. We went from village to village. We spoke in the open air. We spoke in village halls, in churches. We shared our testimonies, and we preached. And we knew that the Lord was with us. We saw people turning to him. It was fantastic. Why do I tell you that? Hopefully, <laughs> not to draw attention to myself. The Lord knows my motives. But to highlight this, that in that situation, we found ourselves in deep need, desperate to see God at work. In that situation, we found ourselves seeing something of his purity and holiness. We found ourselves confessing our sin to him, yes, and to one another. Confess your sins, says James, to one another, that you may be healed. And we found ourselves being assured afresh of the forgiveness of the Lord, the cleansing of the Lord, because of the blood of Jesus. And in a way, the more I, I looked at websites about the Hebrides revival, I saw similarities there. It was much bigger, much greater. God was <laughs> coming to people and revealing them as they were walking himself to them as they were walking down the street. But there was this thing about it starting from a place of desperation. 
And also this, this new perspective on those who don't know the Lord. It's interesting that there was two old ladies in uh, the Hebrides found themselves praying because there were no young people in the church. We need to see people as the Lord sees them. Lost. A sheep without a shepherd. Chasing after this and that. John talked about a tidal wave of secularism, the woke culture that is intolerant and dismissive of old-fashioned Christian values. But the church has been here before. The first century was much worse than ours in terms of immorality and abuse of weak and poor people. Yet the church stood for personal purity and compassion for others in a way that turned the world of their day upside down. They were completely powerless, humanly speaking. They didn't have any clout. They didn't have people in influential positions. It's fashionable today to dismiss the Apostle Paul as a captive of his culture. He wasn't quotes, progressive in his attitudes, like us, poor man, we say paternalistically. He was so harsh and judgmental. But I'll tell you this, God honored the purity and witness of that early church. It became immensely powerful in its witness. And too, it was focused on eternity. This was another perspective that God gave them. Here's Paul. Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal. A new perspective. And then finally, a sacrificial determination. There are times, aren't there, when praise and prayer come easy. But in my experience, those times are rare. Most of the time, it's a hard slog. It requires effort. Part of the reading this morning was this. Keep alert and always persevere in your prayers. Many of you know that he was brought up in the Muller's homes. George Muller was a German who lived, lived a fairly wild life as a young man before the Lord got hold of him. And he established this orphanage in Bristol without asking people for money for about 5,000 children. George Muller once said this, I see more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. <laughs> I love that phrase. It's a quaint phrase. But what's he saying? 
my first priority was to have my soul happy in the Lord. Not how much I might serve the Lord, how much I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and, and how my inner man may be nourished. And that's before he started praying for breakfast that morning for the children. <laughs> I want to be practical. What needs to happen in our lives for us to put prayer first? How and where can we change? Now, I need to recognize that we're all different. We're wired up differently in our personalities, in the way our brains function, in the way our emotions respond. So I'm not going to be prescriptive here, don't worry. But I do want to share a few pointers which may be helpful. And the first is the practice of the presence of God. Uh, made famous by another Frenchman, an 18th century monk in France called Brother Lawrence. You've probably heard this before. Here's this quote from him. The time of business does not differ with me from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I was on my knees. You may find praying tough, at least for more than five minutes. Wandering thoughts, falling asleep, we've all done it. Here's something we can all do. We can deliberately turn to the Lord at certain specific points in our day. When doing the washing up, yes. When we go out the front door when we shower, when we turn off the telly, <laughs> when we settle down at night. You know what would work for you. But that requires effort, it requires discipline, but it can become a lifestyle of constantly through the day at certain points when we do certain things, tuning in to the Lord. The second thing, thy kingdom come praying. Now this was something that was started last year and endorsed enthusiastically by um, Justin Welby. The idea is that you commit to praying for five other people who are not yet Christians for a certain period of time. Here's a story of an 83-year-old lady we're into ladies in their 80s in this course, aren't we? She decided to pray for her neighbors to come to faith. She had been in church all her life, so didn't know anyone who wasn't a Christian until her neighbors were suggested to her. She knew one lot of neighbors on one side, but not the other, despite living next door to them for several years. She prayed, and one of the neighbors she had never spoken to before said hello to her 
when they both happened to be in their gardens at the same time. Through the conversation, it soon emerged that this neighbour was unwell. And so this 83-year-old lady, motivated by loving concern, invited her into her home to pray for healing. And her invitation was accepted. Now, the neighbour is not yet a Christian, <laughs> but a beautiful relationship has developed as a result of this. And the key thing is the elderly lady is now more confident in praying for others and in sharing her faith. That's what prayer can do. And then sacrificial prayer. This is where the rubber hits the road for me. What tally am I prepared to give up to spend time with the Lord? Watching Ben Stokes thrashing the opposition. Watching Chelsea lose again. <laughs> it won't be long before we're into Lent. What meal am I prepared to give up instead of eating, praying? Again, it needs to be sacrificial because I can't give to God that which costs me nothing. There is a cost involved. What time am I prepared to give the Lord that I would otherwise spend surfing the web? Here's a final quote from John Piper. If I can find it. <laughs> Here we are. Oh, I've lost it. That doesn't matter. <clears throat> Let me finish with a story. It's a story of a guy called Brother, uh, not Brother Lawrence, <laughs> Jeremiah Lanfier, or Lanfier, if, if he had Welsh ancestry. I'd never heard of this guy until last week. He was an American in the late 1850s. In 1857, a, a gigantic depression hit America. Thousands of men were thrown out of work, in New York particularly. The stock market went bust. People's lo people lost all their savings. The times were desperate. This guy, Jeremiah, was an unassuming, humble businessman. He felt the Lord nudging him to call people to pray. He was appointed as a city missionary in New York. He decided to send out a handbill to people. He distributed it on the streets of New York. He put it in the press, calling people to pray where he, um, at the church, 
where he worshipped. He called people to pray at 12 o'clock until 1 o'clock, just for an hour. He said, it doesn't matter if you only come for five minutes. Make the effort. <laughs> and so it was that um, he stood in this hall. It was up three flights of stairs, incidentally, waiting for people to come. The date was the 23rd of September, 1857. Twelve o'clock came. No one appeared. He paced the room in a conflict of fear and faith. Ten minutes went by. Still no one came. Fifteen minutes. Twenty minutes. Thirty. And then at 12.30 a step was heard on the stairs. And the first person appeared, then another, and another, and another, until six people were present and the prayer meeting began. On the following Wednesday, there were 40. Then on the first week of October, 1857, it was decided to hold a meeting daily instead of weekly. Within six months, 10,000 businessmen were gathering daily in prayer for New York. And within two years, a million converts were added to the North American churches. Undoubtedly, the greatest revival in New York's colorful history was sweeping the city. There was no fanaticism, no hysteria, simply an incredible movement of the people to pray. And the joy of Jeremiah, Lampier, or Lampier, was great. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. <laughs>